everyone! This is Cartoons to Castles. The history behind the mouse and magic. I'm Melanie. And I'm Jessica. We're best friends and Disney nerds who wanted to learn more about the history behind the Walt Disney Company's movies, shows, music, theme parks, and more, and share it all with you. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Cartoons to Castles. And today we will be talking about a unique attraction that is the only version of its kind at any Disney park in the world. Today we are talking about the Matterhorn, a classic attraction that you can only find at Disneyland Resort in Anaheim, California. Yes, and coming up on June 14th, it will be celebrating its 62nd anniversary, so we felt it was the perfect time to go on an expedition into the history of the Matterhorn bobsleds. Also, we haven't done an episode about an attraction in a while, so this is fun. And, and the Matterhorn is just like such a symbol of hope to me, <laughs> which sounds weird. Yeah, but so I was going to ask you about that, Melanie. So before we dive into this, when we were trying to brainstorm ideas for this month's podcast episodes, we always look at what's maybe having upcoming anniversaries. And yes. I mentioned the Matterhorn and you seemed so excited by it. And I was kind of surprised because you're not a roller coaster person. I'm not a roller coaster person. I I can handle the Matterhorn and I think it's fun, but it does scare me just because roller coasters scare me and it bumps me around a lot and I'm kind of getting too old to do yeah. that. Like I have creaky it's bones. very now. bumpy. <laughs> but I love it as a symbol and as a visual because when my family would drive down from North Idaho to come to Disneyland, like every three or four years, we'd do like a big Disneyland trip when we could. And... When we saw the Matterhorn from the freeway, we knew we were there. We knew we were in the home stretch. It was like this symbol of like hope. When we would see the Matterhorn, we would just like cheer and be like, we're here. We're at Disneyland. (laughs) So that's why it has a special place in your heart. Yeah, that's part of the reason. And I just always loved just walking past it and seeing it. I love the waterfalls. I love hearing the little safety announcements when you walk past. It's just such a fun, kinetic, visual part of Disneyland that just just Mm -hmm. is like classic Disneyland to me. And I think it's such a fun idea for a roller coaster that I just have always really liked it, how themey it is. And yeah. And that's interesting that you talk about it as like kind of a symbol of hope because I guess I never really thought about it. But, um, you know, being locals here in, in California and being very longtime annual pass holders, you know, Disneyland, as I'm sure all you Disney fans know, was closed for almost 14 months. Um, mm-hmm. And the Matterhorn, I mean, you could sometimes see like the Galaxy's Edge, like rock work, but like for the most part, yeah. if you're just driving around Anaheim, it's more common for you to see either Gardens of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, formerly Tower Terror, or the Matterhorn. Right. And right. so often we would pass by the Matterhorn at sunset, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, like someday, someday it'll open. <laughs> but like, I guess it is because it's like a, one yeah. of the few visuals you could see when you're not in the park to let you know, hey, the park's right there, even if you're not in it. (laughs) Because Disney did such a great job of insulating the park from, you know, the city around it, that there are a few things, though, that kind of hit the skyline and can be seen above the walls of Disneyland. And that's one of them. And that was one of the earliest ones. And probably the prettiest looking ones that you can see. It's beautiful, yeah. (laughs) Galaxy's Edge rock work is very beautiful and makes sense once you're inside. But when you see the backside of it, it's just like, 
okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not You know, the but same. the Matterhorn the is very pretty, even if you look at it from outside the park. Yeah, and also, from any I, angle. <laughs> I always found it very special that there's not too many attractions that are only unique to Disneyland. Yeah, um, You know, for most sure. of the time you could find an attraction elsewhere for the most part. So I think it's cool that we have such a one-of-a-kind e-ticket attraction, as well as I love how it just looks Mm -hmm. at Disneyland like it just like you said it adds a lot of kinetic energy and it's very special it's beautiful so let's talk about how the idea came to be and a bit about its construction so during the construction of Disneyland in 1954 and 55 they had to dig up a bunch of dirt to make the moat that lies around Sleeping Beauty's castle They place that pile of dirt off to the side, as one does, um, and (laughs) that spot where they place that dirt happens to be where the Matterhorn stands today. They didn't have the expenses to haul it away at the time. As you may remember from our very first episode, which I have to point out, we aired almost a year ago, if you can believe it. In our very first episode where we go over the history of the opening day of Disneyland, they were way over budget, and they were very short on time. So instead of spending the money and time to have construction crews haul this big mound of dirt away, they just blocked it off from guests, kind of hid it with trees, so no one could really see it there on opening day. Obviously, Walt wouldn't want people to see a giant pile of dirt right next to Sleepy (laughs) Beauty Castle, so it was hidden away. Then in 1956, they would transform this pile of dirt into Holiday Hill. So in 1956, the Skyway, or as some people colloquially call it, the Sky Buckets, opened as an attraction, and it would ascend above the aforementioned discarded pile of moat dirt. And with <laughs> Walt being the perfectionist that he is, he, of course, didn't want people to magically be taking a tour in the sky above a giant pile of dirt. Right. So, yeah, not very cool. Understandable. So, He dubbed it Holiday Hill, and they kind of morphed it uh, to have a little bit of grass and some benches to kind of be like a hillside in a park. So it was like a Mm -hmm. little park area where you can walk around, sit on benches, and have a fabulous view of the park. And Holiday Hill was short-lived because it quickly became a place where guests would get cheeky. (laughs) And was nicknamed Lover's Lane. Oh. And also at the very top of the hill, in an area where no one actually walked, because it wasn't an area with a walking path or a bench, but it was later discovered that at the very top of the hill where no one really accessed, except gardeners, one of the gardeners who worked at Disneyland was growing marijuana there. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, they were like, they wanted to think of something else to do with this hill other than make it a hill with benches with romantic views and secret marijuana growth yeah people making out and in a pot garden yeah yeah (laughs) you know walt wanted it to be different that didn't really align with his original vision for the park and because of this history i have to interject that bob gurr now says what remains disneyland's most visible landmark started out as a marijuana farm (laughs) (laughs) walt approached the head of construction of disneyland admiral joe fowler with his dreams of wanting to transform holiday hill into snow hill that would have a massive snow machine and allow guests to ride down real snow in a toboggan however of course that 
idea was quickly scrapped because that wouldn't work, not only because of the logistics of having a massive snow machine generating enough snow for people to have fun down a toboggan all day, but of course it's Southern California. The snow would melt. Yeah. So Jack Sayers, who was chairman of the park operating committee at Disneyland at the time, suggested to build a toboggan-themed roller coaster. And the idea came to him after he saw something called a Wild Mouse Coaster in Fun Spot magazine, which the Wild Mouse-style coaster was a kind of roller coaster that could do quick turns and drops. He felt that building such an attraction would solve the problem of not having a thrill ride of any kind at the park at the time. The fastest moving ride at this time was Mr. Toad. Mm-hmm. Walt was hesitant because he obviously wanted to consciously differentiate himself from other boardwalk parks and fairs at the time. That's, you know, a big reason why there wasn't thrill rides at Disneyland on opening day, because, you know, the typical fairs and boardwalk amusement parks were very like wooden roller coaster based and that kind of stuff. And he wanted to differentiate himself from that. So he was very concerned about adding a thrill ride roller coaster into the park, but decided to do it, but while being careful to make it immensely themed so that it wouldn't just be a roller coaster just to satisfy the desire for a thrill ride. Like he wanted, right. he's like, every ride here is immersive. This needs to be immersive if we're going to do this and make it different. It uh, needs make it to be themey. Yeah, it has to have exactly. a theme. Now, the initial idea was smaller than what it ended up being. But after Jack Sayers mentioned this idea, the team by 1958 was working on making Holiday Hill into a mountain with some artificial snow and a pair of wild mouse bobsleds. Aww. From what I was reading, it sounded like they were going to have just a couple bobsled vehicles and it was going to be a pretty quick ride. So I guess, you know... It seemed like it was supposed to be a short roller coaster, like a a gadgets go coaster, or a yeah, um, or like a kids roller coaster. At, yeah, yeah, yeah. So at a fair, exactly. So it seemed like it was maybe supposed to be very much more small scale, like that. Mm-hmm. But lots of Disney themed mountain names were tossed around. Magic Mountain was one that I remember. Disney Mountain. Later on in 1958, Walt actually traveled to Switzerland for the filming of the Walt Disney Studios film Third Man on the Mountain. And he was enamored with all things Swiss. He loved Switzerland. And while he was there for the filming of Third Man on the Mountain, he purchased a postcard of the real Matterhorn. Walt felt that would be the perfect inspiration for the roller coaster they had in the works for Disneyland. So from Switzerland, Walt sent Victor Green, who was an art director for Disney, he sent him the postcard. He sent Vic Green the postcard with only the words, build this on it. <laughs> so while he was in I Switzerland. Love that story. <laughs> well, it's just so funny because like if I was if I was an imagineer and my boss just sent me a postcard with the words build this. I feel like I'd be like, I'm going to need some more instructions to make <laughs> sure we're on the same page. Info, like, I want to make sure before I just start in on this project <laughs> that we're on the same page. I'm understanding what you mean. But nope, they just went to work immediately because they understood <laughs> Walt's communication style. And they knew that getting a postcard with just those two words meant they have to get going on this idea. ASAP. They have to build a mountain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were just like, all right, he sent me this postcard with the words build this on it from across the world. <laughs> and also the hope was that uh, making the Matterhorn at Disneyland would be great synergy for marketing of the film Third Man on the Mountain, which I found interesting because I've heard many a times 
Um, and I, in many Disney trivia sessions that the Matterhorn is based on the film Third Man on the Mountain. But that's not quite right. Like, I, I've mm-hmm. seen that in so many Disney trivia things of, like, which attractions are based on movies, you know, like Swiss Family Robinson, of course. And then, like, this is one that's always stumped me because I'm like, I've never even heard of Third Man on the Mountain because obviously it wasn't a big success. Not too many people know of it today. But yeah. it's actually not true. It was not based on the movie. Walt visited the Matterhorn while he was there for the filming of right. the movie. He was just inspired by the region. And then they thought, yeah. oh, this might also be cool to use a synergy for marketing, but it wasn't based directly on the movie. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a common misconception that I've seen in some Disney trivia stuff. So I thought that was interesting to clear that up. So Imagineers went to work on building various models of what the Matterhorn would look like down to the landscaping details, including trees. They would include trees on the model. And the trees were important because if you've ever seen the Matterhorn, there's trees at the base and then there's trees all along the mountain going up to the top and the trees get smaller as the traction structure gets higher so that they could create that forced perspective to make it look taller. Yeah, they do that a lot at Disneyland because they don't have a lot of space. They don't have space. (laughs) So they use forced perspective a lot. Yeah, it seemed as if this would be the largest structure in Orange County, and it was when it was built. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was an incredibly complex structure. If you guys watch, there's various YouTube videos as well, but if you watch the Imagineering story on Disney+, Plus, the very first episode, Episode, they show a lot of images from the construction of it and you could see that the skeleton of the Matterhorn like before they put the rock work and snow and plaster on it it looks very intricate and confusing <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they figured it out but yeah. hey they're the Imagineers right yeah <laughs> As Bob Gurr discussed in that episode I just referenced of the Imagining Story, it involved learning trigonometry and lots of physics, which I'll get into a bit more in a moment. The people at Disney wanted to make a thrill ride, as I mentioned, but also a structure that the Skyway hardware could be hidden in a bit. Because obviously, you know, they want everything to feel immersive. They don't want any eyesores. So they felt like maybe the Matterhorn could also be utilized to hide some of the uh, Skyway structure that wasn't as aesthetically pleasing. Right. So the Skyway would be taken down and reworked so that it would go through the Matterhorn. Although when asked as a very Walt-like joke why it had holes in the Matterhorn, Walt would reply, because it is a Swiss, Swiss mountain. mountain. Like <laughs> Swiss cheese. Get it? So question, Melanie. Yeah. So the Skyway closed in 1994. Did you ever get to write it? Yes, I did. I Tell wrote me on about it. it. Well, I, <laughs> first of all, I loved it. Because I loved, I loved being up high. Like, I'm a little nervous about heights now, but when I was a kid, I just loved to be up high. Like, yeah. it was so nice. I loved the Fantasyland entrance because you kind of walk into a little wooded cabin and then you get into the sky bucket and you would ride just over Fantasyland and over the whole park over to Tomorrowland. You would go through the Matterhorn, which was a really cool experience to kind of Go through the yeah. mountain and look down and see I was the ride ask, going. What could you see when you're in the Matterhorn portion? I was a bit younger, so I don't quite remember exactly what I could see. Mm-hmm. I just remember that I could see parts of the ride below me. Yeah. I have a memory that you could see the Yeti, but that might not be true because I might just be filling in the blanks and imagining I saw the Yeti. But I yeah. knew you could see parts of the ride when you 
when you would ride through. It was just really right. cool. It was really magical. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I went to Disneyland was 1993. And if I did ride it, I don't remember, but I honestly doubt that I did. <laughs> I yeah. don't think I did. But the Imagineers had 10 months to build both the Matterhorn and rework the Skyway structure to run through it. And I just have to say, it's funny to me because when we talk about Walt era Disneyland, there's so many instances where Walt had a gold deadline. And to meet it, they would either have to overspend way over budget, or mm -hmm. they would have to just be in crunch time working constantly and rush to meet Walt's deadline or both. Um, right. But I just find it funny because I feel like nowadays things are constantly announced and it's very rare nowadays for something to be announced with a date and it actually opens the date we're told. Right. Or they, and, and they I'm not wait. just talking yeah. about with COVID because that was a different scenario. But outside of, you know, COVID times, it's rare for them to say this is going to open this date and it actually happens. Yeah. Either the plan gets scratched or yeah. it gets delayed. So I'm just like, why is it that it seems like now it's just like, well, if it's not going to happen, we just got to postpone it. But then when when Walt Disney was in charge, it was just like, well, Walt said he wants to open this date. So by golly, it has to open this date. Like, I'm wondering if it was like a labor law thing where they're just looser mm. labor laws so people could work longer. Was it just because he was Walt Disney that people were like, well, if he wants it, then we got to make it then i i'm yeah it I'm might just, be it curious. might be a combination of several things it might be like changes in labor laws changes in you know safety regulations all of that kind of thing and the fact that when walt says he wants something done they need to do it by the time like it might be a yeah. combination of all of those things so the Matterhorn ended up being 147 feet tall, equaling an exact 1 100th scale model of the real Matterhorn, which is 147,000 feet tall. Mm -hmm. And it ended up costing $1.5 million, which equals $14 million today to build. 250,000 gallons of white resin for the permanent snow was used. Now, getting into that, what I referenced earlier about the physics and trigonometry, I found out this is very interesting. And with all the Disney knowledge I have in my head, I found it kind of shocking that I didn't know that the Matterhorn was the first steel roller coaster ever. Like, I don't know why I didn't know that. Did you know that? Uh, like prior to researching this episode? No, I, I thought it was the first tubular steel roller coaster. It was the first steel roller coaster. Well, no, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and also the first tubular steel coaster. Yeah. But Bob Gert contacted Aero Engineering, which was a roller coaster manufacturing company, to work on a ride system that would better create the effect of riding in a bobsled. The ride vehicles sit on top of tubular steel pipes and primarily relies on gravity to move throughout the ride, since there are no motors on the ride vehicles. So basically, once you're at the highest point, you're just going down. It yeah. mostly relies on gravity. Like which a bobsled, also blew my right? mind. Yeah, yeah, because they wanted it to have that genuine feeling of sliding down a mountain. So, you know, there's always people who say, because there's two tracks, the fantasy land side track and the tomorrow land side track. People always say like one side is faster than the other. And it sounded like it was just, uh, you know, an urban legend. But it's like, Oh, no, this is actually factual because how they descend is just slightly, slightly different. different. And, mm -hmm. and since it relies on gravity, it is slightly different. 
So I thought that was interesting. But yes, it mainly relies on gravity. And of course, there's lots of safety breaks as a backup. It's, you know, <laughs> got to have that safety. And Bob Gurr had to figure out the layout of the track to keep it thrilling. Like I said, after the initial ascent, you could only go back down. So they had to think, well, how can we make it so it doesn't just feel like a slide? You right. know, we need to also make this thrilling. So he worked very hard along with the other Imagineers on the team to develop the whole ride layout so it wasn't just up and then down <laughs> immediately. <laughs> but Bob Gurr recalled in the Imagineering story how this was quite the challenge for him to design since he wasn't just designing a ride vehicle like he did for Autopia along with the machinery, but the Matterhorn involved a lot of physics. And the dip at the bottom, like at the very end of you riding the Matterhorn, you fall down into water and you get a little bit of a splash and apparently that also acts to help break the vehicle since again it's mostly gravity reliant and the water cools off the braking pad since it's rubbing against those tubular steel pipes the whole time that is so smart yeah Now, the reason they made this a steel coaster and they had to work with aero engineering to create a different kind of coaster to make this vision possible and to make it feel like you're truly gliding down the Matterhorn along with fast, sharp turns to replicate a toboggan ride is because the wooden roller coasters that existed at the time, including the new Wild Mouse coaster, wouldn't allow for the sharp, quick turns that they were hoping for. Like, it felt a little bit more jerky. So the team at Disney worked with aero engineering roller coaster manufacturing company to make the tubular steel track. And the reason why it's the tubular steel railings, unlike, you know, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, for example, where the tracks are flat, is mm-hmm. because, again, it wouldn't have that gliding feeling right. um, with a t- typical flat coaster structure, which is why they had it gliding on the tubular steel pipes. And I thought it was kind of funny that the whole reason they did that was to make it feel smooth and like you're actually gliding down snow in a toboggan because I feel like the Matterhorn has the reputation for being like the bumpiest ride. And (laughs) I know, and almost anyone I know who won't go on it, it's not because they find it too scary. Cause as you mentioned, as far as roller coasters go, it's not that scary compared to a lot of others. It's pretty, but like so many people I know won't go on it because they're like, it hurts my butt. So (laughs) I thought it was funny that the whole thing was like, it's supposed to feel like you're gliding. It's supposed to feel smooth and i'm like everyone i know talks about how bumpy it is so i'm truly i think it's i think it was smoother when it first opened i don't think so i think it's the tight turns Mm, okay i think it's the uh, quick ups and downs and the tight turns and the fact that it folds in on itself i feel like if they had more space to spread out it would feel smoother but i think it's because of the tight turns And that's actually true. I guess if you think about it, the tight turns are smoother compared to like the tight turns of goofy sky school at California Adventure. Like that is like truly jerky when you turn. Yeah. So I guess that makes sense. But what makes this so historic aside from being a unique attraction at Disneyland is I read this like interesting fact. Like it's cool to think that almost all new roller coasters built today, like Velocicoaster, which is opening at Universal Orlando, pretty much every major roller coaster that is newly built today is a descendant from this coaster Mm -hmm. from the technology developed for the Matterhorn. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's Um, super cool. Yeah. So Melanie, do you want to take us into opening day? Oh, I sure do. So (laughs) (laughs) take us back in time. 
The Matterhorn first opened at Disneyland on June 14, 1959. So to celebrate the opening of this attraction, along with the opening of the Disneyland monorail and the submarine voyage, which is a lot of attractions to open at once, especially at that time, a huge star-studded celebration was held, along with a live televised special called Disneyland 59. Have you seen this special, Jess? I have not, but I... I really need to. And actually, I almost watched it when researching for this episode. I know I didn't have to because that was your section, but I thought it'd be interesting to watch it. But I decided I wanted to hear you recap it first because (laughs) I knew you'd point out things. Because we always point out different things that one another wouldn't notice. And then I could watch it like laughing, thinking about our conversation while watching it. So I think we could do a whole episode on Disneyland 59, like the special, all the attractions that opened. But I had to narrow it down because I was like, I'm just going to focus on the Matterhorn this time. Right. But there were some funny things about the special. So it was hosted by Art Linkletter, who had hosted the Disneyland opening day special four years earlier. And that special we talk about on our very first episode of this podcast. We talk about the Dateline Disneyland special, which he hosted. But Disneyland 59, unlike the special in 1955, pretty much went off without a hitch. There weren't as many mistakes, and it it (laughs) seemed to go a lot more smoothly. Guests included many, many celebrities of the day, including one of the hosts of the 1955 TV special, Bob Cummings. And Tommy Kirk was there. He starred in several Disney movies. Dennis Hopper was there. I don't know why he was there. And then Annette Funicello and other members of the Mickey Mouse Club, along with tons of other celebrities. There were also top military officials and dignitaries in attendance, including the Consul General of Switzerland, appropriately, and none other than the then Vice President of the United States, Richard Nixon, and his family, who were there to do the dedication of the monorail. So there was a massive parade that was part of this televised special oh my gosh were like floats or like people like what kind of parade are we talking oh my gosh it was huge it had everything so let me tell you about this parade okay (laughs) like like stefan from snl this parade had everything it had motorcades with uh celebrities in attendance uh, including walt disney himself of course there were marching bands equestrians floats commemorating the new rides like there was a float that had a little tiny monorail going around on a track Um, (laughs) there was a float that had king neptune on it and mermaids throwing beads into the audience for the submarine ride (laughs) and then for some reason they had dancers performing traditional dances from all over the world in the parade so there was like a section where Japanese dancers were performing traditional Japanese dances, dancers from Austria or like local clubs that included people of that nationality, Mexico, Scotland, many others. It was kind of like, for a second, I was like, oh, is this a tie-in to It's a Small World? And I was like, no, It's a Small World did not exist yet. So it was interesting that there was like this international flair to the parade for some reason, but that was a big part of the parade. Yeah, that and, is weird. Yeah. And then it ended with a huge brass band playing 76 trombones from the Music Man with the musical's composer himself, Meredith Wilson, hopping in for a surprise appearance to conduct the band. And there was a drill team dancing behind them, kicking their legs in time to the music. And then hundreds of balloons were released into the air. And I think some of them were Mickey balloons. They look like they had ears. It's hard to Gosh, tell. Gosh, I would never do that today. I know. It was like so many balloons. I was like, uh. these are going to be littered all over Anaheim with this. Oh my gosh. It it looked really cool on camera though. And as a funny side note about this TV special, 
I wanted to share that it was also kind of a two hour long commercial for Kodak. So the special was sponsored by Kodak, but also the special's host, Art Linkletter, had an interest in Kodak being featured as well. Now, listeners (laughs) may remember this, they might not. But in our first episode, we talked about that back in 1955, Art Linkletter told Walt Disney that he would host the Disneyland opening day special for free if Walt would give him the film concessions for the park's first 10 years. And that made him mad bank. Like he was rolling in money from this this deal. So of course, there's a part of the special where Linkletter is in the Disneyland camera shop talking about how amazing Kodak cameras are and how every guest should be sure to take lots of pictures during their Disneyland visits. Also, yeah, it seems like if someone is tight on budget and they're not wanting to pay you a lot of money for something, if you're in a position to... Try to negotiate commission for merch. It worked out for George (laughs) Lucas, too. It sure did. (laughs) So anyway, back to the Matterhorn. After their parade on the special, there was a dedication of the submarine voyage along with a mermaid water ballet, the dedication of the monorail with Nixon and his family, and the dedication of the Matterhorn. There were shots of Sierra Club mountain climbers ascending the Matterhorn with one of the Sierra Club representatives talking about the kind of climbing they were doing. And it actually made my palms sweat because there was one part (laughs) where one of the climbers had like these nylon footholds and he was sticking his feet into nylon footholds and trying to pull himself up over the edge of the top of the Matterhorn. And I was like, oh my God, he's going to fall. Oh, he's just hanging there, but he was fine. So they had the climbers and then there was a man at the top of the Matterhorn who was playing a short song on an alpine horn. Do you know what an alpine horn is? It's I the mean, really long, yeah. yeah. It's the really yeah. long horn. I didn't know what they were of, called, but once you said that, I was like, "Oh, okay." I, I had to yeah. look it up. Yeah, <laughs> it's a one of those long horns that cups up at the end, and he's standing at the top playing the horn. And fun fact: that was once used for communication by people who lived in the Alps. I did not know that. Oh wow, I didn't know that either. Yes, it's like and, only in cartoons now. I know, <laughs> and in Disney cartoons. Art Linkletter joked that Walt always liked to bring something back from his travels abroad and that the Matterhorn made a great souvenir for Disneyland. Uh Yeah. So the climbers were at the top and they raised a U.S. flag and what was supposed to be the Swiss flag, but it actually was the Norwegian flag. So that was one of the few mistakes in the... Walt was like (laughs) in Switzerland for a while. How did he not know by that time what it looked like? I assume someone else was in charge of the flag and they accidentally got the wrong flag whoops also feels weird to hang the american flag on a swiss mountain like i get it it's in the united states but yeah they raised them both hopefully they switched it out for the swiss flag later the climbers rappelled back down the mountain and there was a long dance number featuring polka and country western dancing and it ended on a big band style song for some reason and then walt disney himself opened the new areas of the park saying Disneyland was made possible by all of you. The millions have already been here, the people here today, and those we hope to see someday. So I think it's appropriate for the occasion that I ask these children from the visitors here today to help me officially open Disneyland 59 for its only purpose, the pursuit of happiness for all. Come on, children, help me with this. You want to go? Here we go. Come on. I like that he was like, its only purpose is for happiness. There's no other reason. Yeah, that was also like Mickey's purpose too. Well, in Mm -hmm. laughter, I think. 
Laughter. Yeah. No, not happiness. Laughter. Oh, laughter is happy. This is fine. Yeah, it's the same. And then one little girl just like ducks under the rope and she's like, I'm gone. So he, Walt Disney I'm laughs gone. and like pulls the rope to the side. But I thought it was cute. She just ducks under it and starts going. So that was the Disneyland 59 special. And I have to interject yes, before please. you move on from the special. Mm-hmm. We've covered so many of the old Disneyland, or not just Disneyland, Disney Parks television specials in our episodes, both main yes. feed and Patreon exclusive. And I'm sad about it, kind of, because it's one of my favorite things to do. And there's not an infinite amount because they don't yeah. really keep making them. And I'm sad that they don't make them. I like, know. obviously, there are specials, like the Christmas yeah. Day parades and stuff, but they're not the same. Like, they don't do shenanigans. They're they not don't wacky. do nonsensical bits. No. They're just like, here's a band. And here's another band. And they really show you very little of the actual parks in yeah. Modern Day Special, which I don't really understand. But I'm just like, give me the wacky bits. And I they're- know. They're so smoothly produced. And it's like, can we please have some snafus for our own Gosh, entertainment? I wish I was in a position <laughs> at the Walt Disney Company where I could help organize the TV specials. Yeah. Okay. New dream You'd Add some. That's add it. some wackiness. <laughs> yeah. All right, so the new rides added in 1959 were so popular that they required a new ticket to be added to the Disneyland ticket book called an e-ticket. Now, I'm sure that many of the people listening already know about this, but Disneyland used to have ticket books for all of the rides. They had alphabetical designations, so A ticket, B ticket, and so on. So they added a new e-ticket for rides like the Matterhorn and the Submarine Voyage and maybe uh, maybe the Monorail as well. Yeah, so, it was new, so I could yeah, see it. Yeah. yeah, so that was a new e-ticket thing. And then, you know, it kind of became part of pop culture lexicon when people would say something was a good ride. They would say it was an e-ticket. Yeah, I mean, they even yeah. classify rides. I don't think Disney does it, like, officially, like, for the public. I could be incorrect, but... From what I understand, I feel like Imagineers still use that phrase internally because obviously right. they want to have a good ratio of each kind of attraction. For so sure. So I feel like people still are like, this park has so few e-ticket attractions. Like at least among Disney nerds, mm-hmm. like people still classify that even though they're not actually classified that like on maps or whatever. Right. And e-ticket becomes synonymous with this is a big elaborate ride or this is a thrill ride that's going to be really popular. And the Matterhorn was a notable attraction for many reasons, some of them we already talked about, but it was the tallest man-made structure in Orange County when it opened until high-rises started being built in the area in the 1960s and 70s. The Matterhorn was also the first thrill ride in Disneyland, the first tubular steel track roller coaster in the world, the first roller coaster with multiple cars on the same track, and the first roller coaster built by Aero Development, later Aerodynamics, which went on to become an international leading supplier of roller coasters. So this is a little side note. We're kind of going through time or, you know, starting in the 1960s. So at Christmas time in the 1960s, a 24 foot wide star would be placed on top of the Matterhorn with a crane. However, Disneyland stopped doing this in the 1970s. And people have long been kind of speculating why. But the most logical explanation is because of the energy crisis going on in that decade. And according to the book, Disneyland, the first quarter century, it was retired as part of Disneyland's energy conservation efforts. But I know that people who went to the park in the 1960s really talked about that as 
being a very cool thing. You you know, you could see it from the freeway, the giant glowing star. Yeah, I wish I could have seen that. Yeah, I also read that it rotated as well as lit up. What? I'm not sure if that's true, but yeah, that must have been a sight to see. And I feel like that's also been another thing at least in the past 20 years, I always hear so many Disney fans speculate like, oh, I bet they're going to bring the star back for like the 60th anniversary or something like that. Like I hear always, I feel like every five years or so there's speculation, like basically whenever there's an anniversary, they speculate that they're going to bring the star back. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think it'll ever come back? I mean, not in that form. I think they would come up with a more energy efficient version probably with some interesting lighting effects and stuff like that but yeah definitely not the one from the 60s but they might bring (laughs) something back I don't know I would love to know where the star is now like was it oh yeah is it in the archives was it trashed I would love to know that as well I wonder if they have it stored in a warehouse somewhere that would be cool to know I'm very curious if anyone knows where that star is now please let us know So another interesting thing is that back when the ride first opened, there seemed to be some confusion about whether it was part of Tomorrowland or Fantasyland. Now, as we know, the theming kind of doesn't fit either land. It's closer to Fantasyland, especially after Fantasyland went through its makeover in the 1980s to give it less of a circus type look and more of a like uh, European village type look. So it kind of fits in more there. But back in the 1960s, it seemed like People didn't really know. On the back of a 1961 souvenir book, Walt Disney's Guide to Disneyland, the Matterhorn is listed under Fantasyland. And then inside the same book, there's a picture of the attraction in the book's Tomorrowland section. Now, I actually own a Disneyland souvenir guidebook from 1968 that my parents bought for us on uh, eBay. And that's fun. Yeah. And the Matterhorn is listed under Fantasyland and pictured in that section. But on the map in the front of the book, it's clearly located in the borders of Tomorrowland. Like I could share pictures of this. So yes, please. I would love to see that. I think people were confused about where it really belonged. But in 1971, the Matterhorn actually moved from Tomorrowland to Fantasyland. And no, they didn't actually move the mountain. They just changed the (laughs) Disneyland map. From 1965 through 1976, Disneyland guests received Disneyland guide booklets. And up through 1970, the booklets listed the Matterhorn bobsleds as being in Tomorrowland. However, by 1972, the Matterhorn was listed as being in Fantasyland and is still part of this land on current Disneyland guide maps. The Matterhorn was also notable because unlike a real mountain, it was filled with holes. The attraction was updated in 1978 and the inside was changed from an open space into clusters of ice caves. So at the time it was built, when you would go into the ride, it was more open, like you could kind of see everything inside the ride. And then now it's like these little pockets, like you're traveling through these tight little ice caves. And that was a change that they made in 1978. An abominable snowman moved into the ride at this time as well. He was a Yeti who was named Harold for some reason. Do you know why his name was Harold? I didn't even know that his name was Harold. (laughs) Well, if anyone knows why he was named Harold, let us know. Another question we have for our listeners. Also, I could do some further deep dives, but like... The Walt Disney Archives has posted throwback photos of the star. They've never posted any archive photo of the star. It's never been at any exhibit. Uh I mean, I'm sure it's also very big. Yes. But, like, I honestly 
because they've never acknowledged it or shown photos of it or been at any exhibits, I feel like they don't have it. I feel like that would be something that they would have, even if not displayed because it's big, a lot of times on their social, they take photos like from the archives. And I'm like, I feel like that's something. I mean, it's it's 24 feet. It's huge. Like if they wanted to save space, they would take it apart. Yeah, I doubt it's there. I was just seeing if I could see if they ever posted about it or anything. Right. Well, going back to the Yeti named Harold, he was represented by three audio animatronic figures that would surprise guests on the ride. The bobsleds themselves were changed from single-car, four-passenger vehicles into two-car, eight-passenger vehicles, which doubled the ride capacity and shortened the weights. New computer controls were added as well, which also helped with ride capacity. So jumping forward into the 90s, the Matterhorn was updated yet again. The Skyway attraction was removed from the park in late 1994, as just mentioned, and the Matterhorn needed to be remodeled. A glacier grotto was added to the space previously used by the Skyway. And also in 1994, Frank Wells, who was the highly respected president of the Walt Disney Company at the time, died in a helicopter accident. Wells was kind of the yin to Michael Eisner's yang or vice versa, and he was greatly missed by the people in the company. He was also an accomplished mountain climber, so in 1995, Disney added a tribute to him on the Matterhorn, which was some climbing props in one of the ice caverns labeled as being part of the Wells Expedition. The Matterhorn was refurbished again in 2012 with new bobsled vehicles. Now, back in the day, you would sit like two per little space on the bobsled. So really, people like to go on that ride on their dates because they could cozy up together. Yeah. But they changed it. Each guest now had an individual seat and a headrest, and capacity dropped from eight to six guests in each bobsled train. So that was kind of... It was good and and negative. Like, you know, people on dates couldn't cozy up. But also, if you were in an awkward position with, like, your sibling, you could have your own seat. Yeah. And if you're an East Coast Disney person, if you're more familiar with Walt Disney World, how they changed the ride vehicles, it's like how Space Mountain is at Magic Kingdom. It's almost the same seating situation as Space Mountain there. Right. But before they changed it to everyone having their individual seat and you basically had to pair up with someone and like be straddling them. I remember like going there. I was in jazz choir in high school and like, you know, local choirs would often go and perform at the stage at Disneyland. And I remember like when you would be there, like hanging out at Disneyland before you perform, I remember it always being so awkward as like a junior high or high schooler going with fellow classmates and being like, Oh my god, like who's gonna straddle who? Who's gonna spoon me? It was it was like a <laughs> huge source of stress and awkwardness. Oh for sure. For being sure. a teenager riding that ride. For sure, yeah. Yeah. So they they updated that, you know, um probably for safety more than awkwardness. Maybe both. <laughs> Maybe both. <laughs> The loading area was also updated at this time, and the exterior of the mountain was repainted and restructured to give it a more realistic look. And I thought this was cool. Beads of glass were added to the snow to give it kind of a shimmering effect. Oh, it does shimmer, and I did not know that was why. (laughs) 
In 2015, there was another update. The Yeti animatronics were replaced by new versions that moved with more fluidity and new layers of ice, in quotation marks, with film effects were added. And the ice caverns were replaced with the wreckage of an unfortunate climbing expedition that seemed to have had a run-in with the Yeti. The setup included two of the original bobsleds and a Skyway bucket. In 2019, pieces of the mountain's exterior actually collapsed onto the ride track, so it was closed for repairs during the week, and then it was reopened for guests on the weekends until the repairs were fully completed. So they didn't Unfortunately, complete- they compared it to the size of a door, a door-sized yeah. chunk. Fortunately, it fell at like 3 or 4 a.m., so yeah. no guests were Thank there at the goodness. time. Thank goodness. Oh, my Only, gosh. Yeah, like maintenance people noticed it, but yikes. Yeah, yikes indeed. They're very fortunate it didn't happen during operating hours. For sure. And they didn't close the ride totally while they were doing this refurbishment. They just, like I just said, they, they just closed, closed the it on weekdays. Track. Or, yeah. And they closed that, didn't they close that side of the track where it happened until they could assess the, the I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. I think did. that it they only still... had the one track open when it first happened. Right. But the ride was still, you know, running, running. while they were doing running, these repairs. Yeah. The Matterhorn is also currently under construction and closed for repairs for an unspecified amount of time. Oh, they announced the opening date. Oh, they did? Oh, good. Okay. Um, It was either July 2nd or 16th. I'm checking. July 2nd. Thank you. The Matterhorn is reopening July 2nd, the same day as Disneyland Hotel. Okay. And Trader Sam's. So the Matterhorn is currently being repaired, but it is opening on July 2nd with the Disneyland Hotel. Right now, it's fenced off from guests. And so when people were last kind of looking at it and reporting on it, it appeared that parts of the exterior of the mountain had sort of come off. So they were speculating that Imagineers are strengthening the structural integrity of the ride and replacing track ties. Do you know what kind of repairs they were doing? What I had heard, and I'm sure they did more with how long it's been down. I mean, also COVID. So like, who knows how long it would have actually been down if it weren't for the delay in people working. But they were doing a thorough inspection of the integrity of the infrastructure because obviously they wouldn't want any more pieces of it to crumble, especially during opening hours. So of course not. Yeah. I'm sure that also entailed reinforcing things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it would also make sense for Disney to invest in updating this attraction to make sure it's in great shape. Because according to Diz Insider, Disney is developing a live action movie for Disney Plus that is based on the Matterhorn bobsleds. Had you read about that? I had not read about that, but Diz Insider, that website, everything that they report, I take as very accurate. Their sources Mm -hmm. are really good. They do get a lot of first scoops provided by Disney themselves. Their information has always been accurate. Everyone I know in the Disney community tends to take their articles as truth. But yeah, so I would say that's probably true. Yeah, so that should be fun. It's reportedly the working title is The Hill. They might change that, but... uh, Oh my gosh, like, is that a reference to how it used to be Holiday Hill? I don't know! We'll have to see! When it was, like, (laughs) when it was Lover's Lane? Like, is that why it's called that? It also sounds like a a horror movie. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be, but uh, there's going to be a live-action movie. Cool. So... I just wanted to throw in some fun facts. One memorable thing about the Matterhorn is that at the end of the attraction, guests hear a safety announcement where a man's voice said, Remain seated, please. 
Permanecer sentados, por favor. This is one of many recordings by the former voice of Disneyland, Jack Wagner. This recording also introduces the Tomorrowland segment of the Remember Dreams Come True fireworks show. And the safety announcement was also featured on the title track of the 1995 No Doubt album, Tragic Kingdom, which I remember very well from the many, many times I listened to that album. And I remember the first time I heard it, I was like... That's from Disneyland. They took some oh my gosh, audio from funny. Disneyland. Yeah. Remain seated, please. The line is also spoken by Barbie in the film Toy Story 2. Yes. Remain seated, please. sentados, por favor. So this next part, I wanted to do way more research on it than I was able to, I just ran out of time, but Tinkerbell has been flying over Disneyland since the summer of 1961, a real performer playing Tinkerbell, and she rides a sort of zip line through the skies from the top of the mountain and over Sleeping Beauty Castle before the park's Fantasy in the Sky fireworks show. And I know I keep adding topics to our list with this episode, but I was thinking we should do a Tinkerbell episode because we could cover I this. I love that. Oh, yeah, we can cover. Tinkerbell has such a rich history with the parks. Oh, for sure. With the parks and, and you know, the original filming of the movie and her movements and how she developed. Yeah. Yeah. So, I want to do way more about the live Tinkerbell performer. But over the years, you know, she kind of used to have bright spotlight on her. And then she got her own like illuminated outfit. But I thought that was very interesting that they utilized the Matterhorn in that way. Because that hadn't been done before at any park. You know, it was later yeah. replicated in other parks. But I thought always thought that was such a cool thing to see. I remember if you guys watched Disney Channel in the 90s, Disney Channel had this thing called Vault Disney. And I remember that was my first and only opportunity, aside from when I've looked up YouTube clips, to watch Walt Disney Presents and Wonderful World of Color, because otherwise they don't yeah. really replay them anywhere. And I remember them always showing clips of Tinkerbell flying from the Matterhorn. So that's how I first found out about it. And I just remember, like, I feel like that was a big part of the moment of me falling in love with Disneyland. I'm just like, this is so cool. Yeah, so it is. I guess we still see it today, but I can only imagine, like, how much more mind-blowing it would be to see something like that in the 60s. Oh, for sure. Like, you know, it's been going on for many years now, but probably the first time it was like, whoa. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I still get excited when I see Tinkerbell fly across the sky, like before a fireworks show. I'm still like, Tinkerbell! Tinkerbell! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's so much more about the Matterhorn that we could go into, but that is, you know, what we have for today. And it's been a blast. I love talking about the Matterhorn. I know. Actually, when I first presented the idea to you, I was concerned it would be too short and not enough to talk about. But yeah. as we dug into it, I'm like, oh, no. Like, obviously, I knew it was historical, but I was like, there's yeah. even more history behind it than I had realized. But yeah, it was very fun. And if you guys yeah. want visuals to accompany this episode, definitely watch the Disneyland 59. I'm assuming you found it on YouTube. I did, Melody. yes. And yes. then the Imagineering story on Disney Plus episode one. There's a very emotional moment where Imagineer Bob Gurr, who worked on the ride, goes inside the infamous basketball court inside the Matterhorn and things. <laughs> oh my like gosh, that. I didn't even mention the basketball court. Well, okay, that's the, something for another. Yeah, just well, briefly you can in briefly case people say, are yeah. like, I'm dying to know because. <laughs> 
There's a, also another long-term urban legend of there being a basketball court inside the Matterhorn. And the urban legend goes that the reason for it was because the structure uh, was so tall. It was the tallest structure in Orange County at the time in order to get the permits from the city of Anaheim to create a structure so large, it had to be designated as a sports arena. So they put the basketball court to get that. That is not true. (laughs) There is not a basketball court. And that was not the reason it was put there. What there is, though, is a break room inside the Matterhorn, which was made for the mountain climbers who would be up there climbing. And to pass the time between their sets, they put up a hoop a hoop it's just in a the hoop. break room. It's yeah. just a hoop that they put up in the break room, and it's still there. And you could see Bob Gurr shooting a hoop uh, in that that episode of Imagineering Story. But that is yeah. the reason why it's there. It was a break room for them. So it's mountain climbers when they had that on the Matterhorn, and it is just a hoop hanging in a break room. Now, did you ever see the mountain climbers scaling the I Matterhorn? I never have. You no. didn't? Oh my gosh! I remember. No. I remember they did have that a lot. Like when I was growing up and going to Disneyland, they yeah. would have the mountain climbers climbing up the mountain. I always thought that was so cool. It I was feel just like, like a little dose of realism. Of this, yeah. But I feel like I like just missed all. Well, you all were this little. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you were little. Yeah. But, so that um, was really cool. I hope they bring that back someday. And maybe for one of its anniversaries or something. Yeah. That would be fun. That would be fun. And just to let you guys know, if you want some more Disney history, if you're craving a little bit more of Cartoons to Castles, we also have a Patreon page, which mm-hmm. is at patreon.com slash cartoons to castles. And you could subscribe beginning at $3 a month. And we have a monthly newsletter where our patrons are the first to find out what our topics will be for the coming month. And we also have a bonus episode every month. May's episode episode, which you can listen on the dashboard, is about the infamous tensions and rivals from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s between CEO Michael Eisner, head of studios Jeffrey Katzenberg, and Roy O. Disney's son slash Walt Disney's nephew, Roy E. Disney. I find it a very interesting topic, and you can listen <laughs> to that bonus episode on our dashboard. And if you just genuinely enjoy this podcast and want to support us in free ways as well, you can leave us a review. A written review on Apple Podcasts. We'll read it out loud on a future episode. And it really helps new people discover us. So it means a lot for more people to discover the research we put into this. So leaving those reviews are so appreciated if you're able to do so. Yeah, that's very helpful. And you can also find us on social media where we share a lot of the pictures of the things we're talking about. You can find us on Instagram at Cartoons to Castles and on Twitter at cartoons castles and just where can listeners find you if they want to follow you yeah you could find me at the healthy mouse on instagram and tiktok now plugging my tiktok just because i post a lot of very 90s stuff on there so it aligns with this audience and healthy underscore mouse on twitter and melanie where can we find you i'm keep quirky on instagram and keep quirky oc on twitter bye bye Thanks for listening. Till next time, keep keep dreaming. dreaming.